0: Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascarenas and this is our Wednesday show where we niche down to a single topic, think about a question and unpack the rest. It's our first Wednesday show of 2023, so it's super fitting that we are reviewing an eventful week at CES. What stood out? What surprised our on the ground team? It's all we're talking about with my fellow TC reporters, Brian Heater and Haya Kemps both of whom were our eyes and ears, in Vegas last week. Welcome.
1: Happy New Year. Ooh.
2: Hello.
0: So I have so many CES jokes. <laughs> but before we do that, oh. <laughs> I want to start with like a side note, kind of, which is, Brian, I was reading your preview piece before you guys even touched on in Vegas about how CES mm. doesn't want to be known as the Consumer Electronics Show. And I kind of just wanted to start with like <laughs> what CES is and why they don't want to be an acronym anymore.
2: Sure. I have a theory. I have not I'm not actually seen this explained anywhere, but, but my theory is that there's a sense in which I think they felt boxed in, which is silly to say cuz obviously like Consumer Electronics touches on a lot of things, but yeah. specifically I think we'll talk about this in a bit, but I would say over the last 5 years it's really become an automotive show as well. Since the last time we were at the show in 2020, the Las Vegas Convention Center built an entire new wing. It's just a like big Beautiful Hall, I think Kirsten and our team probably spent the most time in there, but we all spent a little bit of time in the West Hall, and that's entirely automotive. So I I think they they were just sort of like hedging their bets going forward. It's really interesting if you talk to anybody who's been to a lot of these. I've been to, I think about 15, which is actually like not on the super high ends. There are people who have been- That's insane. Yeah. uh, Tim Beharin, who is an analyst, wrote a story right before, and he said this was going to be his 48th CES. Oof. That's really far. There's also a show called Comdex that was like tangentially related. You know, they would sell like records, they would sell VHS tapes. And as a complete aside, this was the first year in a long time that the AEE show was happening the same week, which is the Adult Entertainment Expo connected to the AVN Awards, which is the Porto Awards, which actually believe it or not, grew out of CES a long time ago. Uh, It's an artifact of them selling VHS tapes.
0: I'm so glad I asked. Um, I was going to say that the average person, and I'm going to use myself as an example, thinks of CES and thinks of like these kind of futuristic devices. I just immediately think of VR, AR, and drones. But now that feels a bit reductive based on how much it's grown over the years. And Haya, I mean, just looking at the coverage that you had over the past week, it seems like you were running all over the place. Was there like a specific way that you think about CES and what it has each year?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I become a little bit of a grumpy old man type person because I'm like, this is meant to be consumer electronics. But I think to <laughs> your not, point. He's <laughs> not. He's not. I
2: spent a week with him. He's really, he's truly. He's not. the
0: least grumpy person at TC. Can I say that? He's too
2: nice. And and, and, and that gets annoying. And then I <laughs> yeah, become no, a grumpy I, old man. I am terribly annoying when it comes to that.
1: No, but I think they're trying to be the a consumer technology show, right? And so that stretches into stuff like crypto, that stretches into stuff like software solutions. And In fact, some of the stuff that was launched at the show today was really, you know, traditionally hardware companies stretching deeper and deeper into software and making, like, there is no such thing as pure hardware anymore, right? Everything has microchips, everything has a software component, you know, even the big, heavy, like, industrial stuff that you would think of as, like, heavy-duty hardware, you know, has AI, machine learning, all those kinds of things starting to kind of augment the experience of the hardware, if for no other reason than to basically catch faults and problems early.
0: It was TechCrunch's first time at CES after the pandemic, and that's really where I wanted to start, which is what the tone was when you were walking around the floor and talking to founders, investors, retailers. I saw that it was a very international show as well. When I was looking at their website, I think somewhere around 174 companies represented 35% of registrants were from outside the U.S. So yeah, how did it feel? Like, was it happy there?
1: Well, Honestly, I thought it was an awful lot like the old days, which is a little bit terrifying. Oh, Like, I feel like Brian and I were the only people wearing masks at the show, which was, I mean, given that we're in the middle of another wave of COVID and a new variant, I was like, um, what are we doing here, guys? So
2: yeah, I guess we're back to normal. (laughs) I want to say in in their defense, several of our colleagues were in fact wearing masks at the show as well before they... Call you up. Fair.
1: But I feel I feel like on the show floor, there was yeah. very little yeah. very little of anything. So on the bright side, we're back to normal. And on yeah. the downside, we're back to
2: normal.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I mean Brian, you've been there for 15, 15 times, fifteen <laughs> years.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So since since you dropped a bunch of numbers, I'm I'm going to as well. And I, I will try not to be Please. this pedantic. And and this is most of this I think is in the preview piece that you alluded to earlier. Otherwise, there's no good reason to read a preview piece a week after the show is done, unless you want to call me out. I loved it, so. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, so 2020 was the last year that we were there. That was January 2020. So um, we didn't really know at the time, but COVID was very much a thing. And I'm not going to state this as fact, but I'm going to say that there is a lot of speculation that CES 2020 was a huge super spreader event. It's always been you an international say. show. <laughs> it's quite literally called the International CES. That's like the full proper name of it. Uh, in 2020, uh, there were in excess of 170 thousand people at the show. That's not even the top. I mean, I think I think it peaked maybe like five years before at like closer to 200 thousand, maybe 190. There was no CES in 2021, which is great. Took a lot of uh, foot dragging on the CTA's part in order to get there. They really wanted to put on show. Everyone said, it's a terrible idea. I
0: vaguely remember yeah. that controversy, yeah.
2: They finally scrapped it and turned it into a quote-unquote hybrid event. And I say quote-unquote because like they very much did not have their ducks in a row. They just weren't ready for, and I'm sorry, not even hybrid, sorry, a virtual events. The next year was hybrid. But they, they absolutely didn't have the infrastructure. They weren't ready for that. For obvious reasons, too, they didn't want to go fully online because they didn't want people to recognize that, like, hey, maybe it doesn't make that much sense for me to be there. does make sense for us to be there for, again, reasons we can go into earlier. Show comes back last year. We were sort of, like, leaning towards going. Then Omercon happens at the end of 2020. Really big deal. And uh, I made the difficult decision to pull us out of the show that Really, like, weeks before it happened. In fact, I think we ended up having to eat the costs on our hotel rooms. The attendance was around 40,000 in 2022, which is down 75% from 2020. Uh, The word is from the CTA that they were expecting 100,000 this year. I would say anecdotally walking around, it didn't feel like it. There were a lot of people there, obviously, but, like, the halls just didn't feel close to where they really did at their peak. Some of that, again, may be an artifact of the fact that it's just like a really sprawling show and it becomes more sprawling every year. It's not very much, not just a convention center thing. You know, you've got the Venetian formerly Sands Expo. Hayek can talk a lot about that. He spent a lot of time there with all the startups. Basically like every major hotel, there's events happening all over the city. That said, the numbers, I guess, dropped on Monday and the CTA is saying that not only did they hit 100,000, they exceeded 100,000 and it was 115,000, which is genuinely <laughs> shocking to me.
0: <laughs> that is a lot of people. I guess it shows that it's as influential as it has been historically. Not as much as its peak, but people still wanted to show up this year. Yeah, and it's worth
1: pointing out that, I mean, we show up as press, so we're kind of wearing our press hats.
0: But this is very much
1: an OG trade show, right? So this is where distributors meet companies. This is where, you know, executives are all in the same place. A lot of really big deals are made or started at CES. So for the industry, it's actually a really important show. And so we're seeing a lot of that kind of activity happening. And from talking to a bunch of startups, you know, yes, it wasn't as it wasn't like six layers deep around the most successful startups in Eureka Park, for example, which is kind of the, the startup area. But the people who wanted to talk to people and, you know, investors and potential distributors and manufacturers and all that kind of stuff, it seems like most people that I spoke to at least got what they wanted out of the show, which is, you know, it it speaks to the the value of it still existing, even if, you know, there's a third fewer people.
2: Well, let me, let me put this to you, Haya, too. Obviously, we both have our opinions on this, but did you feel it useful and or necessary for you to have been at the show in person this year? So, yes. And I think it's the case because a lot of the
1: interesting stories, the way to do this non-in-person is that you get a bunch of inbound and you yep. talk to your sources and all that kind of stuff, right? And I haven't counted, but I'm sure I got thousands of emails about CES. Uh, and people who don't have anything to do with hardware also get thousands of emails about CES.
2: I actually can I can throw a number at you. <laughs> oh please! As I mentioned before we started recording, that I've, <laughs> I and I had a big heart-to-heart uh, over dinner one night. I had I had a major wall towards oh. the end of last year, and this was like long time coming. You know, pandemic stuff, health stuff, things like that. So I took three weeks off during December. Made a point of coming back the week between Christmas and New Year's because of yeah. the, the terrible timing of CES. It's it's awful. You know, you basically. I was like,
0: like so thankful you guys went, and yeah. I was not there because yeah. I was like, "How do I talk? You guys are
2: too." If you have an emotional <laughs> investment in it, it, um, it will absolutely ruin your holidays. But when I came back right after Christmas, I came back to sixteen hundred unread emails in my inbox. Uh, <laughs> yeah,
0: great.
1: That is unsurprising to me, but I think, as I was saying, I think the reason why it's helpful is to be able. So I walked so. In the basement of the Venetian, there's Hall E, I think, which is known as Eureka Park, Mm -hmm. which or Hall G, whatever it doesn't matter, Eureka Park, and that is where all the startups get to go, right? All the booths are teeny tiny, instead of like the massive multi-million-dollar productions that you get on the main show floors, and uh, it's basically where Korea has a pavilion, you know, France has a pavilion, Belgium has a pavilion. They take like the national uh, Taiwan has a huge pavilion. Yeah, there's like a lot of the different countries like buy out a piece of the show floor and then just send all the startups they want to send. And just, I, I spent two days zigzagging through every single booth. And even after that, uh, other people on the team were like, oh, did you see this? I was like, no. <laughs> but I did my best. And I think the value for me being there in person is the is the happenstance, right? Yeah. It's the conversation yeah. you have with one founder. It's like, hey, do you know anybody else who's doing something here? And then It's really interesting to see that uh, kind of evolve, um, like oh yeah, you should talk to those people, you should talk to these people. I feel like that's really hard to do virtually or over email or on calls and that kind of stuff. And you know, I think that's that's one of the beautiful things about trade shows. It's just you have the ability to take a quick glance at something and go, nope, not for me. And one we go, huh. I'm curious what they're trying to do here because this doesn't make sense to me. And those conversations, like in an email, that would just be a quick archive. Exactly. But there, you have them right in front of you, right? You don't have to book a meeting. You can take two minutes of your time to go, hey, why should I care about this? And if they have a good answer, you know, at least one of my stories came out of them saying, yeah, actually, we're doing something cool here. And I was like, okay, let's talk about it. This is interesting.
0: I feel like not to do their marketing for them, but us doing our jobs is is running around. Is it the most accessible thing to do? No, it costs money. It costs risk of health. At the same time, like I feel like I personally got really used to interacting virtually. That when I am in person, I'm like, this is how you get stories. Like, anyway, just like someone who's only four years into reporting and has not been to a CES yet. I think about that as like um, a goldmine to triangulate trends. But I, let, let's t- let's stick on trends, and I want to talk about who was there and who wasn't there. So, Brian, let's start with you. I, I think there was some interest around why China wasn't there this year. So let's start with that.
2: Yeah. So I'm looking at a headline from uh, the Wall Street Journal that is dated January 8th, which would have been Sunday, which technically was the final day of CES. And the headline is, China reopens to the world as international travel restrictions end. So, you know, obviously you could use the word draconian. China has some uh, very intense lockdown protocols when it comes to stopping the spread of COVID and you know as it's been spiking lately, they basically bar travel so and again, for obvious reasons, China is usually a, a huge huge presence at the show, but I think just having people not flying in from China was a was almost certainly a big hit to attendance
1: yeah, well, and the interesting thing is when I was talking to the startups, there was a surprising or an unusual number of them that were manufacturing in Vietnam, in Indonesia, in eastern Europe, in Brazil in Mexico, right, and I feel like the trouble of getting in and out of China is potentially one of the reasons for that. Balance that with the fact that China is still one of the best places to manufacture, and so it's become a really interesting you know this this touches supply chain stuff yeah. this, this touches a whole lot of stuff. but I think you have some thoughts about that too, Brian.
2: <laughs> yeah, you can see I, that's certainly true, and obviously a big part of the reason why there have been supply chain constraints over the last two years is because of so much. So much manufacturing happens in China. It's, the number is like wildly high, especially with consumer electronics. It's somewhere in like the 90 percentile, yeah. specifically happening in Shenzhen. However, prior to the pandemic, I've had this conversation with, with a lot of people, and it's been interesting to watch. So that's been changing, and it's been changing for a number of reasons. One, so much semiconductor manufacturing just happens in, in Taiwan that's just that's a huge spot for it obviously there's not only a lot of nationalism but there are a lot of uh, security concerns there are a lot of you know concerns as far as like innovating technology that the U.S specifically is passing things like the chips act and you know they're trying to happen domestically but even prior to that and somebody contextualized this I think in a very useful way for me which is effectively when you bring in an industry I mean obviously the United States was a really big manufacture for a very long time mm-hmm. bringing in manufacturing ultimately drives up the quality of life the cost of living in a country uh, and then it subsequently becomes more expensive to manufacture there that's you know that's a big part of the reason why a lot of the outsourcing ultimately ended up in, in China but obviously this is not certainly not across the board certainly there are still a ton of people you know living in poverty levels obviously both in the US and China but that effectively there's a sense in which the quality of life broadly has gone up and it has become cheaper to manufacture. So you mentioned uh, Vietnam is a big one, Singapore is a big one, and, and India has actually become a really big one too. So the pandemic has certainly contributed to but a lot of these trends were already in place prior to it.
1: Yeah, and I think another piece of that is that you know labor isn't as cheap as it was in China. And China inherently has a few... Interesting challenges to do with, you know, in flow of information and that kind of thing. And so if you take away the labor advantage or labor cost advantage, then things start getting a little it starts getting interesting.
0: I think it's part of the reason why a trade show like CES or really any conference that brings together so many different countries and people around the world can offer a window not just into like what matters to the people in attendance, but really like where innovation is heading, which was a big reason I wanted to talk about this on equity, especially like around the startups that you both found yourself finding time with. I definitely want to talk about the downturn's impact on what we saw later on in the show, but let's start with a headline from Brian that I really liked, which was Consumer Robotics Show. I'm sure that made the CES people super happy that um, <laughs> you had another explanation for how their show should be named. <laughs> so what, what, what was coming out of the robotics world?
2: Well, a lot of that. So uh, again, you know, because of the holiday this year, the show started a day later. So it's usually over by Saturday. It was over by Sunday this year. Just because of like being underwater and because of the holiday, we were at an evening event. I was at an evening event specifically with Haya and I turned to him and I said, I, I said, I said, holy shit, it's Wednesday. I, I thought it was Tuesday. the Saturday, which meant I had to write this um, newsletter at over breakfast <laughs> the next morning and Henry was kind enough to edit it for me. So the headline was, it was a very, it was a very last minute headline that said, Well, it's complicated. So I do think that it is becoming a more serious show for robotics for a few reasons. One of them is just that investment, you know, Tasha's, you know, investment in robotics has just gone through the roof, obviously slowed down as a lot of things have, but the pandemic drove robotics and automation perhaps more than any other tech industry as people were, you know, having trouble filling positions and, you know, people just couldn't work Everybody's automating things. Um, that's a big part of it. I think that Amazon's push specifically into home robotics is a big part of it, both making their own robot and then, you know, this should be going any through any day now, I think, their acquisition of iRobot. And then the third really big leg to the stool is, is automotive. So, you know, as I mentioned at the top of the conversation, this has become an increasingly big automotive show. The initial intent in bringing automotive to CES was to show off how sort of like forward-thinking these yeah. companies were. They were doing like infotainment systems. This was even like prior to like, you know, self-driving. But as they have invested more in self-driving, they've also invested more in robotics. And any self-driving, any autonomous car is effectively a robot. They've got the components there, but also, you know, in 2020, right before that CES happened, Hyundai bought. Dynamics, so that was a big part of it too. So you're seeing like actual, like real serious robots start to start to trickle in. Wait, when
0: you say serious robots, yeah. I wonder like how much it looks like a a cute little startup or a, a new Toyota update. Did you find the smaller startups showing up in this serious robotics category? And if so, who? <laughs> yeah,
2: that, that's a really good question, and and that kind of brings me around to the main point as far as coverage is going and. You know, and I mentioned this in the preview piece. It was effectively awarding to other reporters who don't cover robotics regularly as I do to be very careful because "quote unquote" consumer robotics have been a really big part of the show for a very long time, but in very few cases have they actually been serious. I mean, they're toys, which is fine. And you know, a robot is like a very easy shorthand to say, "Hey, this is like a cool futuristic yeah. toy." But I do think that we we risk a little bit muddying the waters when i say serious robots in this context i largely mean industrial robots so robots that like right now can go out there and do work uh, we're we're getting into the stage where we can start having serious conversations about serious consumer robotics but aside from vacuum cleaners we're we're not really getting there so and these serious robots coming in they have not displaced the unserious consumer robotics. In fact, it's quite probably. the opposite. As there's more acceptance and recognition of robotics, more companies are coming in and making it that said, I mean, we did we did see some cool robot toys. I think Haya, you probably saw a few yourself.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think really the like we started the show with talking about that CES doesn't really want to be called consumer Electronics show. And I think this is one version of that, right? Brian will probably massively disagree with me, but I think actually everything that does something semi-autonomously or smartly is a robot. And at this point, it's really hard to buy a fridge or a washing machine or anything like that that isn't to some degree identifiable as a robot. It's a single-use robot, right? But washing machines and all that kind of stuff get so much smarter that at some point we're going to tip that thing. You know, your washing machine isn't going to stand up and walk away and clean your car for you, but there's definitely a lot of, like, smart uh, electronics and smart, all this kind of stuff that's showing up in almost everything. Like in seen through one lens, there's very few things at CES now that doesn't have an element of AI or smart robotics or something like that as part of it. And I think that's really just a convergence of how technology is going. And so you're seeing it show up in cars, of course, and in home appliances and in smart power distribution and almost everywhere.
0: I want to know like what it takes to stand out as a result, because I agree with you that everything feels like it's becoming smarter, better marketing, better packaging. Was there a startup that you find both of yourselves still thinking about today, now that it's been a few days since you've come back to real life? I know one is hard, and we'll get into other trends, but it's specifically around the idea of like smart use cases.
2: Yeah, I will say that, again, I think I think Haya is better equipped to answer this question because of sort of the nature of the show and the nature of how we covered it. I ended up kind of like running our show on the ground, so I was doing a lot of administrative stuff. And then I also, I, I was taking a lot of meetings. I spent a lot of time with Natalie on our social yeah. team, effectively like taking her around for two days to a lot of the meetings. And as I was telling people, like the kind of the overarching theme of what I was doing at the show was I was putting stuff on my face. <laughs> So you know, I I tested out all the major VR, AR, yeah, uh, magically the you know Meta's new headset, HTC's new headset, the new uh, PlayStation VR. Tested out the Dyson air purifier like bane mask that's connected to headphones on there too. Um, But I will say that the wonderful thing about having Natalie at the show like with me was that she had not only never been to CES. She had never been to Vegas before. <laughs> so it was actually really nice like having somebody who was actually legit. She was legitimately excited to see technology. And, you know, a little bit of that rubs off on, on your cynical and jaded self. A hundred
0: percent. I feel like when I'm in person, I'm like, I actually like this. This is, I like this. No, that's great. <laughs> that's great. Hiya, what, since Brian said that you were the one talking to all those startups in those small booths, what were the ones that stood out to you?
1: Actually, the thing that stood out to me most was how many people talked about climate and green tech, and who nice. didn't really quite get there. Mm. Right? I feel like a lot of the, like especially in startup land, it was actually a little disappointing. I think Harry wrote about this, or was going to write about this in more detail. But I think she's going to write about this. Okay. Yeah. So that'll still that's still coming. So I don't want to spoiler it. Oh but,
0: yeah. How companies at CES are taking on climate change or pretending to. Yes.
1: Oh, yes. There you go. He went out yesterday. Well, it's, greenwashing, it's, baby. It's all in the headline, right? It's There's a lot of greenwashing. And a lot of the companies were like, we are doing green tech. And then when you look at the thing, it's like, well, you know what would be greener? Your company not existing. Mm. And I'm like, this is, so yes, you are- You are Damn, crazy. girl. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's true though, right? It's like, yes, you're trying to do something that, you know, I don't know, a slightly greener speaker, like, yes, but instead of that, yeah, let's, like, if your company didn't exist, we would be better off. And I think that's a really interesting, like, like, can we think about climate tech and green tech holistically, which means reduce, reuse, repair, recycle? Let's use these things for longer. And for some of the products, I'm like, I don't, thanks for mentioning green,
2: but that is like the ugliest kind of greenwashing. So I have, I actually have a really good, I have a good anecdote that that Haia already knows. Um, Ooh, so coming. one of the things that you can't get when you're covering virtually are these, these overheards. You get? Yeah. You know, of just like sort of being around. Yeah, hi, smile, because he knows exactly what I'm going to talk about. So on the first, I think, the, yeah, the first day that the show floor opens, Natalie and I were, we we like, basically lunch options are not great in the Las Vegas Convention Center, and you end up like cramming yourself into a cafeteria. So we're, we're sitting, like, we're standing eating in this cafeteria and there's people around us. And, you know, over the course of our, our salads, two guys walk up and, one guy starts chatting to the other guy. He says, I'm a crypto guy. What do you do? And guy two says, I run a carbon capture startup. And guy one says, Oh, there's crypto in that. Do you use blockchain? And guy two says, No. Uh-huh. So it's like, it, it's that thing of like, it, it, you know, obviously we've all got our uh, opinions. I certainly do of like the environmental impacts of crypto, crypto yes. blockchain entities specifically. But I, there are like some ideas that at some point might pan out, but it does feel somewhat ironic trying to shoehorn crypto into climate tech.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, one, that feels like a comic strip waiting to be drawn out. Um, and two, yeah, I'm, Bryce, I'm, if
2: you're listening, <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm even thinking like this theme of sustainability, it actually even fits with Kirsten's piece on how in car tech and Electric vehicles dominated CES this year, and I know she was probably with those bigger companies, but it very much hits your point. I guess there's like a good and bad. There's like the natural overlaps, and then and then there's crypto, um, which makes me actually wonder. Well, and then one of the big trends I ended up writing up,
1: which was uh, the title of the article, I think, was "All Battery Power All the Time." Yes, I want to talk about that, which actually is related to climate change, right? Like very recently, nobody really cared all that much about having backup power for your house. And so, really, this becomes a mitigation thing. Like, I'm currently, (laughs) like, right before this show, I was out in my backyard shoveling mud because there's been a huge amount of rain and, you know, my entire garden is washed away. But these are the kind of things that, you know, are directly linked to climate change. There's huge amounts of change in the environment. There's a huge amount of uh, more power cuts than we've ever seen before. And it's just a lot of shifts and changes that are happening. And one of the outputs of that, I think, is a general interest in battery tech. So either whole house battery or like the smaller portable uh, kind of things. And I can honestly not remember seeing this at CES before, but this year it was absolutely everywhere. Lots of people doing battery backup, solar power, whole house battery packs, all that kind of thing. And I think that's in part, of course, that is because the EV industry is massively booming and batteries are you know the high the highest end batteries going cars but like the second tier down is starting to drop in price and so it's relatively easy to put together battery packs for technologies that where that battery isn't as in demand for cars for example
2: I was just going to say and and I am probably touched on this in this piece I mean I have noticed a lot of generators before this year's show but it's interesting because you know obviously this is a case of a lot of the breakthroughs happening in automotive, you know, pushing down the accessibility and, and price of these, but it's also coming from the other end, which is really interesting. And and hi, I don't know if you noticed this too, but you'll see, you've been seeing this for several years. Like companies like Anchor, which do like small, you know, iPhone chargers, are suddenly doing these like big generators. So it's like both directions are are effectively converging.
1: Yeah, totally. And I think the other piece of that is that the actual hard thing isn't batteries. Like if you walk around one of the like big show floor type things in Shenzhen, batteries are everywhere, in every shape, every whatever. The hard thing is uh, battery controllers. So how do you charge, discharge? How do you keep track of charge? How do you make it predictable? How do you make them last? And that is one of the really big things that other areas of consumer electronics have hugely shifted. Like batteries in phones is an obvious one, but you know, other battery packs, cars, this slice of battery like cell conditioning and keeping track of how much power is actually in the cells, that has changed dramatically over the last five, six years.
0: I want to end with a conversation around ambition and just bringing us back to what does it look like when we have a bunch of companies together at CES during a downturn where it's unsure how venture capital is really going to fund hardware Ambitious robotics and fun gadgets. Like I did see some fun stories from your team on whether it was like the blender cup or the uh, pillow that you can hold and soothe you. Um, was that an outlier, or you know, did you feel like there was still these you know a lightness to the show this year? Did everything feel serious and ready to go to market?
2: Uh, no, it, it. There's always weird, wonderful, wacky gadgets, and those will always. Those will always get a lot of traffic, and will always get a lot of interest from you know both reporters and readers. The I, I had a great I had a, a dinner with the CEO of Kickstarter and met some really cool crowdfunding startups that way. Uh, Yukai, which is the company that does the hugging pillow, um, the CEO is actually a friend of mine. We you know we we met in Japan a couple times, and he previously made the cat pillow.
0: I saw when I was digging. I, in I went down a huge okay. hole like with this. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: Down, a, down a cat hole. Yeah. He makes a lot of weird things. But it, it it's always going to be a piece of it. But something that I think, again, on its face is is very plainly obvious, but you know, it didn't really occur to me until a couple of days in the show, which relates back to something that we we're talking about at the top, is the impact not only of the economy and startup funding. Cause I, I think like the actual startup funding thing is long tail. I think like the real economic downturn, will start seeing that impact in a year or two because it takes a long time to iterate and bring a piece of hardware to market, but we are seeing a very immediate impact of the bottom line from some of these big companies. They're just not making gadgets as much as they used to, if you notice toward the end of last year. Like, there weren't as many Apple announcements. Obviously, there weren't as many uh, Amazon announcements. There's just not as much hardware coming out from these big companies. Yeah. But also, again, the supply chain absolutely factors into all of this. That's a big, it's with inflation going one direction, the supply chain going the other, the margins are just are thinner and thinner. So for that reason, you're just not seeing <laughs> as much hardware at shows like this.
0: I think, like quick follow-up, it was just that something I've been holding on to, a question I've been holding on to this whole time mm. is, do you guys think what <laughs> happened at CES is going to stay at CES? Um, like, do you think that go to market was a priority for a lot of these
2: people? Okay. I was like I was, I was like, like, what have you heard? Oh, about no no, no not drama behind Vegas the, the we...
0: scenes, even though I would love to hear okay. about that offline. but mm-hmm. more so, like the vibe from the companies, like were they telling you that this is out in two months? was did it still feel like donate to my Kickstarter and maybe four years from now you'll hear from me? Like I know generalizations, <laughs> we hate them, but Hayat, what what do you think?
1: Well, I think there's something, there's a little bit of self-selective quality to this, right? Going to a trade show as a startup is fantastically expensive. Mm. And so if you choose to spend money there, then you're probably slightly later in your process, I think. You know, we saw a couple of startups that were essentially university projects, and I wrote about one of them. But I think there's an interesting piece around that those companies that can afford to go and are willing to, you know, it costs $20,000 easily by the time you've Gotten there, set up your booth, all that kind of stuff. I think at shows like this, you will always see the companies that, for various reasons, have a reason to be there.
2: Yeah. I mean, the only reason why I slightly shook my head and that is, and, and this is a really interesting element in all of this, is that you will encounter a lot of people who aren't exhibiting at the show. Whether it's like somebody who, like, you know, sees your name tag, don't do this, please, sees your name tag, <laughs> <or> <laughs> bumps into you and starts giving you a pitch, which, okay, fair enough. I have gotten some good set there. Or, The best meetings, like nine out of 10 times the best meetings that I take at CES are, they're in hotel suites. Mm. They're they're like not official. They're not part of the show floor. The really cool early stage stuff you're not going to see on the floor for all the reasons that we mentioned before. But you'll sit in a hotel room and you'll get an early prototype. I was going to bring up Mojo Vision. Obviously, their, their story does not have a happy ending, but I had seen them several times in the past couple of years in hotel rooms. Labrador Systems, which is an elder care robotics firm that just struck a deal with Amazon, has a happier story. And them too, the past like four or five times, it, they've been in these hotel suite meetings. The highest, certainly right from the standpoint of vaporware largely. I think this was a bigger problem early on for whatever reason. Maybe Mm. it was crowdfunding. Maybe it was just all the money. I mean, this is probably is a result of the VC money that's coming in that it's just, it's silly to exhibit at a show if there's like no realistic path to actually come to market. You do see vaporware, but you see vaporware from bigger companies. You see a lot of concept Mm. products and those are the ones that grab headlines because you know like automotive they're like super cool and weird and interesting but a lot of times you know i can't think of any off the top of my mind maybe Hayek can but like there have been so many times where we would see the same product year after year after year at ces and then one year it just disappears
0: that's so sad
1: (laughs) yeah there was one good example actually when i was walking the show floor i saw this cat's litter box that has like ai that recognizes the cat's Bowel movements and stuff, and does. And I was like, ah, oh, that's you know, that's quirky enough to take a look at. But then I googled it, and they did a Indiegogo campaign like three years ago. Huh. All their backers are furious, and I was like, you know what? You've been here. This is this has now been vaporware for so long. I'm not even going to go near it. You can you can <laughs> sort off. But that happens. That happens with remarkable regularity.
0: Thank you both for peeling the layer back behind CES. I'm so glad we got a chance to chat. For everyone listening, if you are as obsessed with Haya and Brian as I am, you can obviously read them on TechCrunch, but Haya writes The Daily Crunch with Christine Hall, and Brian writes Actuator, which is a um, great newsletter. We mentioned it a few times. I'll link all the things in the show notes. And Brian, Haya, thank you so much for joining Equity.
1: Thank you for having us. Thank you.
0: Bye. See you all next week. Equity Wednesdays are hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter, Natasha Mascarenas. We're produced by Teresa Locansolo with editing by Cal Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Picavet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be back next week.